I mean, frankly, if you want to watch something about a serial killer, Hannibal's right there, and then you'll be full, and you mm-hmm. don't need to watch. You eat your crappy Dexter. Right. Well, you know what Rosenbaum would say Dexter. about it. Say, wow, well, yeah, we you shouldn't be s- watching anything about serial killers anyway. Exactly. Yeah. He'd say, we all got a sick obsession with it. We all need our heads examined. Say, Sounds of the Lambs, fuck you. Man, yeah, I miss the glory days. I, like, remember picking up the reader and being like, oh, j Row, no country for old men, no stars. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute fucking legend shit. That's funny. What, what did he say? It's the same grounds that he dismissed Silence of the Lambs. It's just shallow, nihilistic, yeah. killer-worship garbage, and that Americans should be ashamed of themselves, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, like, totally valid. Yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, well, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown them? They crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm joined here with... Andrew Stasiulis and Eric Marsh. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week and the other two gentlemen then choose films in response to that theme and we hash it out. And so it was my turn again to select the theme and one of the reasons I picked it was because I'm here again. I'm I'm back in town uh, and not for long. I, I hopefully fly out tomorrow morning, but here I am back in the cold, cold, cold Chicago. We can maybe hear the heat kind of roaring roaring with us here as we're a bunch of cold boys huddled around our microphones trying to keep each other warm and it's been a cozy homecoming and it's good to be in the house of gauntlet the church of gauntlet that's why i thought this week we could look at some homecomings and in a way you know here i am i'm coming home with my boys uh my brothers you could say my gauntlet brothers and we've got two films here about coming home to see your brother (laughs) kind of a funny happenstance so why don't you start, Marsh, by telling us about your film, as it's the earlier of the two. Yeah, well, recently been watching some films by the great classic Hollywood director Vincente Minnelli. Watched Home from the Hill recently for the first time and was very much blown away by it and watched Tea and Sympathy as well and so thought we could keep it going here and uh, for me revisit one of the great classic Hollywood films, Some Came Running from 1958. This is a film that is set in 1948 in the post-war period about Dave Hirsch, played by Frank Sinatra, who is a cynical army veteran and one-time writer who has returned to his home of Parkman, Indiana on accident because of a sort of drunken incident in Chicago. He wakes up on a bus in his hometown. And he's not alone. With him is Ginny, 
as played by Shirley MacLaine, who is a quote-unquote floozy, uh, a party girl. <laughs> Dave returns home, and soon he's got the whole town on tilt because he is a uh, brooding and sensitive man and a uh, call back to an earlier episode, a lusty man as well. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, and this film is a star-studded MGM melodrama shot in Cinemascope and Metrocolor, and it is a gorgeous, elegant film uh, about a lot of seedy stuff. So I think it has this sort of tension uh, like the films of Douglas Sirk where you're watching this insanely elegant production of a, a sleaze fest and a vulgarity fest. And so I think that combination for me uh, is kind of magical. And I should mention of course this film also stars Dean Martin in one of his first big non-Jerry Lewis roles uh, that sort of convinced producers that he was a viable actor outside of the comedy context. Uh, and he plays Bama, a, a friend of Dave's or a friend that Dave makes uh, as he returns home. Generally speaking, yeah, the plot is about family and love and lust and drinking and lots and lots of drinking. And it's one of the more explicit portrayals of alcoholism in this sort of old, you know, Hayes Code era or late Hayes Code era, mm -hmm. but it's still pretty, pretty raw for a, a late 50s film in terms of uh, some of the stuff that they're showing and some of the stuff that these uh, actors are doing. So uh, that some came running. Beautiful. So Andy, you picked a film that is a, a sort of a different type of vulgarity fest, uh, to use Marsh's words. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, it's, it's a very sleazy, vulgar movie in its own right. When you gave us the topic, I initially was immediately drawn to a great homecoming martial arts film starring Bruce Lee, Fist of Fury. And I was like, I know it right away. It was like, as soon as you mentioned the topic, I was like, we're doing that. And then you had said, well, I just watched that like two days ago. And I was like, <laughs> ah, I can't do that. So, so I think my brain was in that mode. You know, I was thinking of just like martial arts, you know, the, the hero returning home and, and having to, you know, avenge his master or whatever. So I, I just took a step back and, and then was sort of, thinking like you know what's a great movie that i just feel like not a lot of people have seen and that is 2019's avengement directed by the great vulgar auteur jesse v johnson starring an amazing contemporary martial arts actor the one and only scott adkins and adkins plays kane burgess uh, when the film opens, we see that he has been let out of prison. He's a he's a sort of like very monstrous looking guy. He's got these gnarly like metal teeth in his mouth. His face is incredibly scarred. I mean, he just looks like a rough and tough customer. But he's been he's been let out of prison. We can surmise in the beginning on a sort of compassionate leave to go visit his mother, who is very sick with cancer. Uh, when he arrives, he discovers that his mother uh, has died. And this then allows him or, or encourages him to, to break out while on this compassionate leave and overpower the, the police officers who've been escorting him. And uh, when he escapes, he doesn't go running off 
you know, to find his freedom elsewhere, he returns to his old stomping grounds and a bar called the Horse and Jockey. And it's here at the Horse and Jockey where he sort of inserts himself and uh, has a sort of violent homecoming uh, in which he's seeking out his brother and uh, without getting, you know, too heavy into the plot, uh, because the film really then, you know, takes its time to to explain, like, why he's here, what he's done. <laughs> it becomes a very, very sort of bloody return for him as he seeks to confront his brother for what he sees as an incredible uh, injustice that was delivered upon him. Uh, and it is... Uh, Wow, it is it is bloody and violent, and, and uh, if you've seen any Jesse V. Johnson movies or any Scott Adkins films, you will be uh, quite familiar with a lot of uh, <laughs> what unfolds from here. So I think it's a it's a it's a it's a really awesome film, and it's a film that really flies under the radar because it's you know it's a d direct to video film that doesn't have a lot of fanfare around it. But uh, I believe it is, you know, in the pairing of Jesse V. Johnson and Scott Adkins, they've made quite a few films together. I, I think this is my favorite of their work together. And I think it is perhaps Scott Adkins' best all-around performance in a film. To say nothing of the martial arts, it's really just anchored by a, a, a really powerful central performance. It reminded me of... Chopper and Eric Bana in that kind of, you know, manic prison mode thing. Uh, and I mean that as a compliment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chopper's great. Yeah, I, love well, Chopper. I love Chopper, yeah. So, yeah, as I mentioned, this has all been a homecoming for me. And the past couple of days, I've been crashing at my parents' place in the suburbs. So I did have the chance to watch both of these films with my, my mother and father and shouldn't come as a surprise which one uh, tickled my father more, and that was um, Avengement, yeah. without a doubt. Some very vocal and loud reactions from both of my parents <laughs> while, while watching Avengement. Highly recommended experience, uh, Gauntlet listeners, to sit down with mom and dad and, and pop this bad boy on and see how they react. They were much more quiet and... Um, respectful while watching uh, Some Came Running. I think they they were moved in a much different way than um, the, their emotional response to, to Avengement. You know, like, like many of the double features we put together, you know, on the surface, it's very easy, I think, to sort of look at two films that we, we pair and go, what the hell? Like, these two movies together. <laughs> but uh, again, I, I think, <laughs> surprisingly... A lot in common, obviously. A shocking in, amount. Yeah, <laughs> two completely different ways. Yeah. But I mean, really, I often say it's it's really it enhances your experience to like watch the films back to back or watch them like incredibly close together. And I think if you were to watch these two back to back or or you know. Uh, within a day of each other, you would have a, a, a very thrilling uh, and I think very fun kind of experience. Like they, they really are because Some Came Running is a film that is just, there's just so much 
simmering under the surface. It's a lot of internalizing. It's very downbeat. And then Avengement comes along and it is just like this explosive rage kind of just from basically like the first minute, you know? I mean, it's just so loud and brash and in your face and also very short comparatively. I mean, I think Some Came Running is... Close to two. It's over two hours. Yeah, over two hours. And this is like barely 90 minutes. Benjamin is like, it is a brisk 80-something. You know, you take the credits out and it's probably like 82 minutes or something like that. And it just goes, you know, it doesn't really let up at all. No, it doesn't. It was funny watching them in such close proximity because you have different reactions to things that you you might not have in a, in a normal situation, such as while watching Some Came Running and there's a sequence where Frank Sinatra kind of beats a dude up on the on the side of the road. And I was thinking, compared, compared to how punchy and, and the brawls and, and Avengement, the scene of Frank beating that guy up felt like Robert De Niro in The Irishman, you know, <laughs> 75 years old, pretending yeah. to like knock someone on the curb. There's also that card game uh, knife pull brawl in Some Came Running as well, which was was reminiscent, you know, uh, of Avengement or vice versa. I mean, I wrote down both of these films have backroom card games. They've got gangsters pulling knives on people. They've got brawls. They've got uh, murders. And uh, they also... Secrets being revealed in bars. (laughs) Secrets being revealed in bars. Yeah, I I did write down, too, that both films are technically benders because uh, Scott Atkins is is drinking, you know, for Mm -hmm. the first time in seven years because he's been in prison and he makes a big show of all the pints he's drinking to make up for lost time. And after watching some came running i'm like here's another protagonist who just won't stop drinking you know (laughs) yeah i think a big difference is like when you watch some came running you just want to drink water yeah you know and i will say the pints that he guzzles down in avengement seemed so well earned and so (laughs) thirst quenching after all the violence in action like i felt like i needed a beer like right after that, sure. you know? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how he treats it, too, in that sort of present sequence. I mean, we should say that the film is not out of order, but it has a, a strict flashback kind of structure to it. And I did read on Wikipedia, it said the filmmakers were inspired by Harakiri, the Kobayashi film, in how they centered that, like, present bar scene and then flashback, 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 right? So that's pretty much how the film is structured. It's like he's telling you know, these blokes at this bar, like, here's how I got to this moment, yeah. right? And in between, yeah, fighting them, insulting them, drinking pints, and yeah. kind of holding court. And, mm-hmm. and specifically, like, one of the first things, like, he says when he begins, like, his his story is, you, you want to know how I got all these fucking scars? Because his face is so gnarly. I mean, he is scarred the fuck up. And so it begins, you know, from this premise with all these dudes in the bar who have no idea who he is, like, look at me. I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you how I got all this shit, you mm-hmm. know, because they don't know who he is. He's waiting for his brother. Like, he's seeking out his brother. And so, yeah, it is then this this sort of, like, this ghostly sort of figure that that now is haunting this bar and, and you know, pulls up a stool and a pint and sort of, like, I got a story for you. And I will say, you know, one thing I, I really, I really, I don't know if you two picked up on this, but you know, like there are times when he's telling his story to these, these dudes who, 
you know, it quickly becomes antagonistic with them. Uh, and yet at times when he's telling his story, did you pick up on some of the, the actors who are listening? They just look totally enraptured in his story. Like I was yeah. like, there are times where like, they're like, man, this is a good story <laughs> yeah. that he's telling. Well, I was even thinking like, you know, as we're seeing these flashbacks, I'm like, wow, he must be telling the story in incredible detail. Like when he's telling the story, do you think he's like, and then, you know, like right hook, you yeah. know, like, and then I threw this guy like beat by beat of the blow action because yeah. I mean, if he was narrating these like insane prison brawls that they're always cutting to, I mean, it's probably a captivating uh, oral story. going. I'm sure there. it's probably an incredibly difficult to describe in such rich detail detail the fights you get in but the images we are given as audience members are incredibly rich in their yeah. details of the fight choreography so i think it is very fair to assume that i mean he was truly a bard <laughs> in in the pub and he was spinning a beautiful story i you know i really was surprised as i was watching because not that i went in nervous or anything but initially once i realized it was kind of time jumpy I thought, oh, is this going to lean in on some, you know, Tarantino-style narratives, um, like these, like, chapters? But it really doesn't feel like that, especially since the flashbacks aren't entirely in chronological order. I mean, that's also something that you will see in a, in a Tarantino film, especially, like, Pulp Fiction, things told out of order. But it feels very natural for the way he's telling the story and the details he's giving everyone. Well, because he's sort of telling the the emo his emotional story, right? Yeah. So it's not necessarily yeah, like it started here and here, but all these different things that built up to this moment right now, right? And I was yeah, I was really uh, taken with how they doled out all that information in the backstory. Like by the end, I was completely riveted. Like well, I thought it was going to be maybe a little shallow, but then it just like even more was revealed. And I honestly, yeah, I found it very sad satisfying as a flashback structure and especially too because like you know a lot of the flashbacks are just like montages of prison fights which mm -hmm. are extremely enjoyable it's interesting how you mentioned that he's telling his emotional story and in a way the film is telling us his emotional story through visual violence and his transformation exactly too, right? but that's also something that it has in common with some came running is that there is so much emotional turmoil in that film and emotional violence, and it's being told to us through the images, through light, through color, because it's a group of people who aren't explicitly saying a lot of what's <laughs> boiling inside of them. Yeah, you know, comparing the two uh, prodigal brothers, mm -hmm. the term is directly used in, in Avengement, but, you know, it's certainly there in uh, Some Came Running as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, Kane in Avengement, the whole reason he's there is to is to tell, is to tell his story yeah. and to tell it, as we've said, in graphic detail. Whereas Dave in Some Came Running, like, he doesn't want to talk. He doesn't want to tell anybody what's going on. You know, he... And he's withholding his own stories as a writer. Absolutely, right? I mean, that's like a big part of it is, you know, that he has this this unfinished story, you know, as a writer that he's, you know, at first I think when he gets into his hotel room, doesn't he throw it in a garbage he can? Does. Yeah. He's going to get rid of it. Like he tosses the manuscript in the bin. Yeah. He doesn't want to share it. You know, it's, it's junk. And, and when people push him, when people do, you know, the, the various people that he encounters try to get him to open up, it pushes him away. Right. It, it uh, encourages him to 
run uh, or attempt to run. You know, and there's uh, the character Gwen, this this uh, college teacher who is a very big fan of his writing. You know, thinks he's a genius. When she particularly like is is uh, having encounters with him, she says that at a certain point, right? I feel like you're you're running from something or running to something, but I can't figure out what it is. But it's certain that he is attempting to run at all times. Whereas, again, Kane is just plants himself on the bar stool <laughs> yeah, and is like, anywhere, yeah. I, "Yeah, keep pouring the pints. I got I got all night here. You know? I just broke out of prison. I'm gonna get my fucking every minute's yeah. worth." Well, he's you know he's got the grind mindset. He's helped himself, whereas Dave is wallowing in a pool of alcohol and regret and uh, bitter memories of the Battle of the Bulge or whatever's going on in yeah. his in his stormy mind, right? And and we should say as well as I I didn't say this in the opening, but much of the plot of Some Came Running is centered on the conflict between Dave and his older brother, Frank, as played by gauntlet legend Arthur Kennedy, last seen in Barabbas, who is a jeweler and a banker and a big man about town in Parkman, Indiana. He's funding the centennial celebration. He's a bigwig. And I did find it very interesting that both older brother characters are kind of the primary antagonist of of these films. And both of the older brothers are, right, these kind of powerful set-up figures, one in the underworld, one in, you know, finance, right? <laughs> What's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and they're both worried about appearances, and they're both worried about their reputations uh, at the expense of the little brother. And the little brothers have... Uh, a lot of feelings about that and a lot to prove uh, because of this uh, tension between their older brother. And in the case of Some Came Running, Frank, it's mentioned, put Dave in a in a charity orphanage <laughs> uh, when he was like 12 years old or something. So extremely strained, right? Yeah. Both brothers at points turned their back on our main characters, on our, you know, heroes, yes. our protagonists. So, you know, that's part of what is 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 boiling in in inside both of them is this feeling of betrayal mm-hmm. this feeling of rejection and yes it manifests very differently in both but <laughs> but yeah you know and and that is you know in some came running it had been a long time since i I'd, I'd i'd seen the film i i forgot how big a presence arthur kennedy plays in it you know i i forgot like how how much of the film is is about him as well, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and sort of juxtaposing these two different ways of of moving through the world, you know, where Dave, it's it's quickly established, uh, doesn't really give a shit about what anybody thinks, in spite of the fact that he he hides his, you know, inner world, uh, he's very much who he is. In, in any social situation, conventions or politeness be damned. Whereas Frank is is someone who's always concerned about what people are thinking, has at least two sides to him uh, that are are constantly kind of battling. Right, this this sense of you know what will the neighbors think, what will the town think. 
But then anytime he like steps out of the room with his wife, like they're immediately just at each other's throats fighting. You know, all yeah. that that veneer just immediately crumbles whenever he's in private situation. Because even his interactions with Dave, at least at first, he's just glad handing, mucking it up, you know, kind of trying to paper over mm -hmm. uh, the truth of or the reality of their relationship and of the situation. And I love that the, like, the first thing Dave does when he gets to town is deposit all his money in the rival bank to Frank's <laughs> to piss him off. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, it's like $5,500, which I did the conversion. That's like 60, 70 grand. Damn. So, uh, it's a lot wow. of money. Yeah, and Frank was pissed. Yeah. And it is also then like this showcase of like the town, right? The town and the city, right? The town because immediately Dave gets off this bus, is so fucking hungover, like drags himself to this hotel, you know, deposits his money, all this stuff. It seems like within an hour, everyone in town is a buzz, is talking, knows that he's there. It seems like the town knows Dave is is there before Frank does even because people are like letting Frank know that like hey your brother's back and he just deposited money and it was some floozy on the bus with him and all this <laughs> it's just like immediately spreading like wildfire and that is a, a thing that at times like made me laugh is like how s seemingly like small and claustrophobic this this place you know Parkman Indiana is that you know a, a bar fight leads to like front page news in the local right. newspaper, you know, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, all the radio reports are just like Dave got arrested yeah, <laughs> throughout yeah. the movie. It's funny though, because that's a departure point between the films because no one ever has any time to let the older brother know that Kane is back in town in Avengement because he kills them before they have a chance to share his homecoming with everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And and he also, like, does the very smart thing in, you know, 2019, which is, you know, once he gets into the bar and he, he sort of, like, pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and, and tells everybody to sit down and shut up and listen to his story, he, he immediately is like... Everybody's cell phones. He takes everybody's cell phone and throws them in a jar of pickled eggs. Pretty know? astute for a guy who's been in prison for seven years. <laughs> right. you know? yeah. He it's wouldn't true. think his first impulse would be to go to the phones. Yeah. But he'd been out for a few days, so he'd probably thought about it. You yeah, know? he was seeing everybody glued to their screens, you know. Yeah, no wonder he wasn't caught, you know? He's just moving through. Yeah. Maybe he just had, like, just before he went to prison, he had one too many experiences of seeing glowing screens at the cinema and just got so frustrated that he's like, I'm going to tell my story and this is church. I would like respect in the pub. Right. Don't be texting while I'm talking. Right. Here. Like this is, this is a, there's a lot of fights I got to cover. Here. I don't want right. to tell this multiple times. <laughs> and of course, as you mentioned, Andy, some came running being a, a film about the town, you know, as much as it's about Dave, it's about a lot of people, you know, it's this big melodramatic small town ensemble. So are the locations in the film are very much, yeah, like, Smitty's Bar, at the uh, at the Hirsch House, at the French House, you know, these very, like, official kind of uh, locations throughout, and a lot of time spent in the, in the pub, as in Avengement. So again, there really is, yeah, I mean, it's what you do when you come home. You go to the pub, right? You know, at least, yeah, maybe before the pandemic or whatever. Uh, but you come home, you go to your favorite bar, mm -hmm. you know, maybe see some old people you used to know there. Yeah. And Smitty's, I don't know about you guys, but I was like, man, if if a Smitty's existed 
in Chicago, I would be there all the time. Yeah, that's yeah. a legit rules. bar. Yeah, and they, of course, you know, any bar that also has a, a backroom poker game that yeah. seems to be running at all hours definitely appeals to me. Funny enough, seemed like the kind of bar that would have framed photographs of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin on the walls. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I read that Minnelli wanted the interiors of this film to, quote, feel like a pinball machine. And there's a pinball machine prominently featured by the front door of Smitty's. And you see a couple times people leaning over, smoking their cigarettes with their glasses of whiskey, playing pinball. That was something I really loved about the film is how bustling with life everything is in the background of the frame um, even if it's something as simple as a phone call like early in the film when Arthur Kennedy gets the news that his brother is back in town and outside the window behind him are just kids just shooting the shit hanging out but there's just there's life there's so much there and I think part of that helped because they were using real locations uh, where they filmed they were actually filming in Indiana in Madison Indiana so they had essentially a whole strip to let life happen, let things play out in the background. But even in the interiors, there's just so much bustling activity everywhere you go in that movie. Yeah, I think this film is is one of those films where you just go like, this is CinemaScope, this is widescreen. Yeah. And to your point, every frame is bustling. And, and just the way... Minnelli uses widescreen in this movie is is crazy. Like within the first 20 minutes, the way Shirley MacLaine is introduced is as just like a little abstract speck of color in the corner of the mm -hmm. frame. And then when we meet Frank and the jewelers, with no words exchanged, they set up the entire dynamic of him and his secretary. And then when Dave goes into Smitty's bar, you can see the cowboy hat of Bama, Dean Martin, in the deep background two minutes before he's introduced, you know? Like, it really is just this, like, magical deep space widescreen, so meticulously blocked. Like, oh, yeah. it's fucking great. Yeah, I mean, he, he shoots the shit out of every location yeah. they find themselves in. And, you know, there's another scene, uh, since we're on this topic, that, you know, there isn't anything particularly revealed by this. When they go to this supper club, there's this moment where Dave is dancing with the college professor, the clean-cut girl, Gwen. And I don't know if you noticed, but, like, they had several times like completely changed their position on the dance floor and the camera panned along with them and they go from like one end of this massive dining room to the other just sort of like dancing around and honestly I was like this is just to show everybody damn look at this fucking room Minnelli shoots it like it's a fucking MGM musical at times you know the choreography the 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 camera moves the lights I mean everything it's just it is it is a marvel of you know, visual design. Yeah. I think there's something really interesting in that dance and the way he's using space because they're moving through the room because she clearly doesn't want to dance with him as much as he wants to dance with her. And that's something that's explored in great detail in the film, the way he's sort of pawing her, wrapping his entire 
body around her his arms are like connecting behind her back holding her he's like locking her in it's horrifying and she is like actively resisting it and it's so interesting later in the film where they do eventually share a kiss at her home and the way he shoots it is so haunting because they're moving back and forth between light and shadow in a room and I do think that dance you're talking about it is a spectacle showing the room, but I also think that very often in the film, if he's not saying something explicitly, he's trying to show through space the sort of emotional tension between them that is so difficult to put the words because it's something that only cinema can do. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, for a film that's based off of a novel to then kind of repurpose these scenes in such a way it's kind of overwhelming <laughs> it's just crazy that they made movies like this oh yeah, you know, like yeah. they were so good and we should say you know a little bit about i think this particular relationship of of dave and gwen mm-hmm. because as i mentioned before right the whole thing with her is she has heard of him she's read everything he's written and she admires his talent and not just her but also her her father you know who has the bumbling this, professor yes yeah. the bumbling <laughs> professor like they both you know wanted to come over to the hirsch house just to meet him because they admire him as as such a writer and the dad has this really awkward line early on uh that i think he says to Dave's brother, just out of nowhere, he says to to Frank, Dave's brother, you know, he's an extremely sensitive man, you know? And it's yeah. like, just from reading his books or whatever, right? But they they see inside of him, they they through his his words, they they see something there. And when Dave first meets Gwen and she's complimenting him on on his his writing and and saying, you know, she sees him as this this very smart, very talented, troubled soul, he's immediately, like, his first reaction to her is basically like, hey, you want to get out of here and go fuck? I mean, like, he's just right away mm-hmm. just trying to bang her, you know? Yeah. yeah. He, I, I, I should even broadly say, like, throughout the film, he is just an incredibly toxic person. Like, I, I know that's the point, but, like, man, he is kind of despicable, you know, the way he acts throughout the film. I mean, the way he he handles women, obviously, you know, whether it's Shirley MacLaine as Ginny or Miss French Gwen. uh, Yeah, he's a rough and tumble guy, you know, and it's very uncomfortable throughout. And, And he you know, goes through these phases, right? Because even after he, he he sort of, like, falls in love with Gwen, he stops drinking and he stops, you know, acting certain ways. But uh, ultimately, yeah, he's just this kind of, like, instinctual animal, you yeah. know, who doesn't really give a shit about, about very much. And, and, you know, it's interesting that the film doesn't dwell a lot on, on his past, right? They just say he hasn't been back for 16 years, which would imply that yeah he published those novels like in the 30s during the depression and then he was in the army I know for a fact the book opens in the Battle of the Bulge you know and and there's even like a you know a line about the Germans running over the hill you know tying it into the title or whatever and I don't think yeah I think I forgot to mention this is of course a, a big James Jones novel adaptation which had been done to great success uh, a few years earlier 
with Frank Sinatra in his star-making turn in From Here to Eternity. So this was also, this film was like an attempt to recapture the the box office magic of From Here to Eternity. But yeah, we really don't get a lot of detail about Dave, and that just makes him even more kind of like interesting and mysterious in the context Mm -hmm. of the film because he is so sensitive, he is so brooding, but he's he's hard to crack. You know, he's a tough nut to crack. Mm-hmm. That's I think also what propels Gwen towards him, despite the fact that at times he's you know pawing over her, he's groping, his attempts to just like get her in bed are very repulsive to her. You know, she yeah. is very put off by them, and and is you know telling him like don't do this don't touch me like no I'm not gonna fucking sleep with you dude like I want to talk about your books I want to be your editor <laughs> yeah yeah I want to I want to help you get published in the Atlantic you yeah know? and that's why it's so shocking when they do share a kiss and it is one of those things that as a viewer you you wonder like how could this be you know how could this be rationalized as you're seeing it happen but then you see the light and you see the way they move in and out of the light and it sort of just answers all your questions for you there are just some things that you can't really put to words that are perplexing about humans and the way they behave and i think that he shows us this and you need a full elmer bernstein orchestra in (laughs) the background as the curtain blows in the wind it was hard to tell exactly what the source was of this shift of light it almost feels extremely artificial in that moment because they're hanging out in her study and you can see the river in the distance it's, it's actually it's the river that's uh, is on the border between Indiana and Kentucky and you can see you know like classic midwestern smokestacks in the background and of this like beautiful little river with all the green and that's out the window and they retreat closer to the camera and it's as if an entire light was covered and it's just darkness. So when he grabs her, he removes the bobby pins from her hair and her hair comes down and she retreats back into the light, leaving him in the darkness. And we get a shadowy look at her face. And it's it's kind of hard to describe. It's something you have to just see and it's something that's so cinematic because it's everything you need to know about why she's afraid of him, why she doesn't want to be with him, and yet also why she's returning towards the camera to embrace and to kiss is all right there in that shadow and in that expression. And it's just something that's so delicate. I think it's it's also important in talking about his relationship with Gwen and the 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 twists and turns that that relationship takes to like pair it with the relationship with Ginny Shirley MacLaine mm-hmm. because he's he's sort of oscillating between the two of them. He's bouncing back and forth and the two women come to represent sort of two different sides of him, you know, two different personalities even that he's trying to put out in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. He's really sort of struggling with his identity and like who he is, like who he wants to be even. You know, for Ginny, this, this yeah, Chicago this loose Chicago floozy or whatever, you know, she doesn't give a shit about who he is or anything that he's struggling with inside him. You know, she is not, as it is presented in the film, the maybe the brightest person, certainly not academic in any way, shape, or form, though she is, I think, incredibly street smart. She has a much more sort of like earthy sense of being of character you know she's very present oriented it's all Mm -hmm. about 
the pleasures of the moment. And for him, like, this is a certain persona that I think he has really kind of hid behind, you know, this, as long as I don't think about who I was or my past or my family or book critics or whatever, you know, the, the, the literary set, I'm happy. You know, he's, he's constantly running from that. Well, it's like Robin Wood said in classic Hollywood, there's, you know, the two kinds of women. There's the ideal woman, you know, uh, in the home, the perfect sort of like Gwen, right? And then there's the the saloon entertainer, right? Yeah, Those yeah. are the the two, you know, that's the dichotomy of classic Hollywood. And you very much see it here in the classic setup. He's between these women who are on opposite ends of the spectrum. They represent completely different things. And the, and the pros and cons that go with that. And I think it should be said that ultimately this film is full of basically like Every character cares about someone more than that character cares for them back. Right. And that's like doubled and tripled, you know, yeah. into Frank and his relationship with his wife and secretary and their daughter's relationship with her parents and her sexual life as an 18-year-old. Uh, so again, it's, yeah, this thing like ruptures out these sort of like quiet, desperate suburban or small town American lives that are unhappy, unfulfilled. Everyone loves someone else. Everyone is looking for something else. Everyone's everyone's yeah. running, guys. Everyone is running. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> running away from themselves and each other and there's just so much emotional depth and I think what both of you are saying about these two relationships, him with Gwen and him with Ginny. With Gwen, he's so drawn to this woman who does not love him but respects his intelligence and his creativity as, a, as an author. He's clearly seeking that out, that validation in that relationship. He wants someone who can stroke his ego, someone that does admire what he does and can get him published in the Atlantic. Um, he's like, here's a respectable, intelligent woman who teaches and she respects me for, for what I do. And then there's Ginny, who loves him on a much more instinctual level, loves him for who he is, whatever that means, and that scares him. And he wants to run away from that. He can't handle the idea of her loving him not for what he's accomplishing, but for what's in his heart. And I think he's afraid of what's in his heart. And that's one of the reasons that he rejects so much of her affection and her advances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's completely struggling with the, you know, Freud's Madonna prostitute complex, you know, Marsh, as you point out, that sort of the, the two archetypes of classic yeah. Hollywood. Wife yeah. and, the, and the prostitute. Yeah. You know, and again, why he's so despicable to me at times mm -hmm. is because whenever he does sort of get rejected uh, or his advances get uh, rebuffed by Gwen, he will then go back to Ginny and sort of be like, try to make up with her right, and, and, right. and, you know, pull her back in and, and also get some affection from her. Of course, a much more maybe primal. Carnal <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and like, man, Shirley MacLaine, what a fucking performance. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, yeah. she is really the person in this film. I think that as it unfolds, like she gets it worse than anybody. Absolutely. You know? She really gets put through the ringer you know, mostly by, by him, but, but by others. And, you know, part of, I think why she, she sees him as a kind person is because her bar is so low, you know, it's quickly established that, that, you know, she 
probably hung out with a very rough crowd in Chicago, and he showed her just a little bit of kindness when he was drunk. Only when he was drunk. Right. He's like the guy in Chaplin's uh, City Lights, who's only his friend when he's drinking. That's (laughs) what their relationship is. Because she even at times early on in the film is like, Please, Dave, have a drink. You're so much, you're so nice when you're drinking. Yeah, and, and Bama says it to him later. You know, like when he's kicked the booze and he's trying to, you know, put on a cardigan and go hang out with the 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 Frenches and talk about books. Yeah, play the like, writer. Yeah, Bama like is like, dude, have a fucking scotch. Like you are getting on my nerves. You know, <laughs> that's this this thing that that he grapples with throughout the film is that. You know, when he's he's drinking and he's throwing his money around and he's living fast and loose, like he is this like kind of funny, easygoing, charming dude. But of course it is all just this sort of like liquid charm that he has. And and Ginny is, you know, somebody that that's still in spite of that, like falls in love with him or thinks that she falls in love with him. He's trying to hold on to whatever shred of decency he showed her. And we, we get a sense of, of like how low her bar is because she's also followed to Indiana by a man that has a very ambiguous relationship with her from Chicago, Raymond. Fucking Raymond, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, from Chicago. I love it, you know? And and I, I almost read it, I don't know how you guys did, but I, I almost also kind of read it that, you know, there might have been this sort of pimp relationship that he had with her because, you know, he doesn't really seem, Raymond, this guy, this hood from Chicago, doesn't really seem to be, like, affectionate towards no, her. No, so but he owns her. Yeah. Like, yeah. She's his property, yeah. Yeah, there's a really bizarre power dynamic on display that they don't sort of address explicitly because they keep so many details about him very vague. But it really is one of the best depictions of alcoholism I've ever seen on screen because it's not a group of men who are just slurring. It's you see how they're functioning with other people and how they treat other people using alcohol as that crutch. Because even Dean Martin throughout the entire film, I mean, he's just drinking all day, every day. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there there are multiple scenes in this film in the first thing in the morning they're cracking beers. They're pouring glasses Pouring's of whiskey. They're pouring full the glasses yeah. of whiskey, like right when they wake up. And yeah, it's this never-ending party for them. And we should say too, yeah. So like when, as Dave is oscillating between these two worlds and two sort of sides of himself, yeah, the other side is is Bama, who is a card shark from the South, who just sort of ended up in Parkman at some point and kind of travels around the Indiana. Back room card circuit and so that's a big part of the film as well is this road trip that uh the foursome go on dave and bama and Ginny and rosalie bama's uh some sometime girlfriend <laughs> yeah. uh, who also has her own consumption problems yeah. uh, as we see later when <laughs> oh, she yeah. no uh, turns into basically a sleeping zombie because she's so wasted <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, she's yeah <laughs> bama wearing his hat throughout the entire film and all also the kind of guy that has a sock suspenders, um, a detail that my father was quite taken by, <laughs> yeah. just pointing at the screen and going, sock suspenders, because yeah. he really liked that. You know, in Contempt, when he put wears the, the cowboy hat in the bathtub, that's a, a direct... 
Bama reference. I'm sure. Uh, of course. Yes, yeah. because it is pointed out very explicitly that Bama never takes that hat off. And as Bama says, any time the hat has come off, for one reason or another, he's been struck by some kind of bad luck. Something bad happens to him, he says, every time that hat comes off. I wondered how the the practicality of it, because Dean has he's got so much product in his hair. He's got he's got such a greasy greasy hairstyle. I was wondering how he was applying that uh, without removing his hat. Oh, I mean, the shit they probably used to put in their hair back then was was it sticking there for a month? I mean, they probably yeah. put asbestos in there. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? You know, back then. But you know, bringing up the whole like the, the drinking thing as well, and the alcoholism thing. Like, I think it's it's very interesting that it is Sinatra and Martin, right? Because so much of their persona that they would develop during this time as, you know, the Rat Pack, you know, that was like the shtick was like just drinking, drinking, drinking. And, you know, the interesting thing about Dean Martin in the Rat Pack was, you know, he played in so many of his, you know, even his like public persona was that he was this the biggest boozer of them all, that, that mm-hmm. Dean Martin was always drunk. And when they did the Rat Pack thing, his presence on stage was that he was, you know, hammered all the time. And and yet in real life, like Dean Martin was like a teetotaler. Like he never drank. Uh, and when he would perform with the Rat Pack, I mean, it was like apple juice or something. It wasn't whiskey that he was drinking. And yet like that was for the Rat Pack, this thing of like what it was like to be cool in the late 50s and 60s was oh, to yeah. just, just drink all the time, just to be drunk. And there was, I don't know if either of you picked up on it, because there was moments where they had banter between the two of them that felt very improvisational, very unscripted. And I don't know if you picked up on the line when at a certain point they're like just kind of goofing around and talking about being drunk or card luck or something. And Sinatra says to Dean Martin, ain't that a kick in the head? And Martin gives him like a little like, knowing kind of nod. So I had the exact same thought, but I looked it up, and Dean Martin didn't record that song until 1960. And this film came out in 58. Oh, my God. (laughs) Isn't that (laughs) really weird? It is. I don't know if he was, like, performing it live before then, and maybe... It's very possible. uh, But when I looked up the background on the song, the earliest things I could see were 1960. Because it felt like such a canned moment. It, totally. It? Like it such seemed, a, like, a wink, yeah. wink. Like mm-hmm. On that note, I read in Minnelli's autobiography that after they shot all the on-location stuff and they went back to do a lot of the interiors in Hollywood, Frank insisted that they work noon to eight instead of nine to five. Uh, and it was, yes, to accommodate his party lifestyle, but it was also because he just was like, well, that's all actors. Like, performers work better in the afternoon. <laughs> and Minnelli was happy to oblige. He said, oh, okay, Frank, if that's what you want, if that's going to keep the, the actors loose and happy, like, we'll do it, you know? So I found that to be uh, like yeah. an, an interesting, you know, because Frank had a lot of say in this film, right? I mean, he's, he's a notorious control freak. Yeah, well, of know? course. And he, uh, being the self-proclaimed, Claimed or you know Bogart inherited uh, leader leader of the Rat Pack and megastar right he cast Dean Martin and he cast Shirley MacLaine as well and allegedly came up with the ending of the film which is different from the novel and it was you know specifically uh, what he said to Shirley MacLaine is that yeah we're going to change the ending 
and it's going to, you know, get you an Academy Award. Uh, and it got her a nomination, but she didn't win. But that's what he said. He thought that was more tragic. It would make her character so much more powerful in her as a performer. Because, like, he was also, like, bringing her into the Rat Pack. Like, socially, they became very close. And on the note of Chicago gangsters, Raymond uh, isn't the only Chicago gangster that was on the set of Some Came Running. Uh, Sam Giancana. Oh, yeah played some cards on the set of yeah. Some Came Running. Wow. Uh, yeah, Shirley tells the story to Ben Mankiewicz on like a TCM thing about, yeah, playing cards with Sam and Sam not really G knowing who he was, you know, and like yeah. being like, oh, you're the famous mob guy or whatever, you know, because hey, they're in Indiana. It's a stone's throw uh, from... Chicago. Oh, yeah. Southern Indiana, though, I was going to say, that's a bit of a trek still for Gene <laughs> Connor to make, but I mean, you, you want to hang out with Minnelli and all the guys, you know? Oh, absolutely. You probably want to see Dean and Frank, I guess, more than Minnelli, but... Yeah, well, Minnelli <laughs> claims in his autobiography that uh, he didn't socialize much with uh, the guys because he was meticulously planning the picture. <laughs> yeah, <I'm not> sure. <laughs> I had nothing to do with the gangster. I was working on the visual style of my film. Innocent. Ever the interior decorator. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but it does like it does remind me that like Sinatra could be just such an uneven actor. You know, that there are certain Sinatra films and performances, and I would include this one in it, where he is just he's great, you know, and especially mm -hmm. at playing these, you know, troubled, boozy jerks, you know, these losers, you know, and, and at other times, you know, like you almost feel like he's dialing it in. And I, I think that was very much like a part of, you know, him that like, if he cared about the role, if he cared about the film, if he saw something in it, he would give it his all. And it's very clear in this film that, that he does yeah. because he gives a great performance. I mean, he, he knows the kind of person he's playing. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, he's, he's coming home, but He's not, you know, this is not like Hail the Conqueror here, you know, coming home from the war, like everything. He doesn't want to be there. And yet there's this interesting thing that once his brother starts to try to usher him out, he kind of decides, I think I'm going to stick around, you know, showing you again that like he's a dick, you know, and he likes ruffling feathers and he likes causing a stir in Parkman, Indiana. Yeah, and look, the people of Parkman are very nice to Dave. Everyone is very encouraging. I like. I even wrote down at one point, just like, everyone is trying to help Dave, and Dave is just mm -hmm. running away from them. Even Bama is, like, encouraging him to write. Like, come on the road with me. Get some good writing in, you know? Like, everyone is so supportive. So, I mean, to me, well, yeah, it's not a surprise that he's like, hey, this isn't bad. Like, I like these people. Smitty's Bar, very good bar, you know? Yeah, yeah. What, what more do you need? And Bama is a very kind of, like, important presence as well because, you know, to me, he is really, like, the only one who really seems to just, like, get it, you know? But Bama is, like, is really unobtrusively, like, who he is. Yes, and to his code. detriment. To, to his detriment, right? You know, he has a code and he's going to stick by it. My, my favorite line in the whole movie is when uh, he's packing a suitcase full of liquor bottles for his trip and he's trying to convince Dave to come with him and he goes, uh, You know, the boys in Terre Haute, they don't set no limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so many good Indiana town callouts. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. it, it's interesting because, like, yeah, James Jones was from Southern Illinois, and uh, uh, Dean Martin, of course, is from you know, like Southern Ohio, like Boonies Midwest. You know, so yeah. like, even though he's playing a Southern character here, he feels right at home in this little like small Indiana town. You oh know? yeah, it has so much regional appeal, as we've talked about before. It, it really does feel like a product of the Midwest. I mean, it obviously helps that it was filmed out here, but shooting that entire street and putting so much detail into the life in the town, um, it just feels very lived in and authentic so that when there are all those one-liners, it, it, it feels like it's really revealing about the Midwest way of life mid-century in America. So much good neon uh, that yeah. we lost. This is what they took from us. These great storefronts. <laughs> um, Who did Shirley lose to? in the Oscars. That's a great question. I'm really surprised that she didn't walk home with the Oscar gold because especially in the scene when she goes to visit Gwen, the college instructor in her classroom and to figure out whether she's in love with Dave or not and whether she should retreat um, and accept her fate of not being able to just have a relationship with Dave. I just kept thinking of the Spark Song Academy Award performance was like playing in my head <laughs> during that scene because it's incredible. I mean, she has that line where she says, I would give my right eye for him to love me back. Yeah, she she strips herself. It just like tore there. me up inside, yeah. Shirley MacLaine lost the Best Actress Oscar to Susan Hayward in I Want to Live, uh, exclamation mark, where she plays the Barbara Graham, the prostitute and criminal who faces capital punishment. Yeah, that's the thing. Shirley probably needed to be put on death row in that film in order for her to secure well, Oscar yeah. gold. Well, yeah, I mean, she, yeah, she does get uh, near there, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's so many, like, seeds that that are are being planted throughout the film and you know i think it wouldn't be a proper like homecoming uh without a, a sort of like grand homecoming uh, to do right it all seems to be building and boiling to the parkman centennial oh yeah the mm-hmm. parkman centennial this big celebration of a hundred years of Parkman, Indiana, which again, I think Bama sort of kind of shits all over when he's a, I think he says something like, it took him a hundred years to build all this. Like, it's like, come on, like, give me a break. Bama's always just sort of cutting through all the, yeah, the, yeah. the Midwestern like bullshit, you know? And by the time the Parkman centennial rolls around, Bama has been uh, diagnosed with diabetes. And, <laughs> diabetes, yeah. Uh, is told explicitly by the doctor that uh, you cannot drink anymore, which he immediately then starts drinking. And that's, I mean, that is, it, <laughs> yeah. it's obviously comical when they're in the car and he's just like, no, I'm just going to live the way I live and then die, you know? And right. it's this very cavalier kind of attitude. But in the hospital scene, it's one of the great like in-depth compositions where Dave goes over to the window and pensively pulls out a cigarette as Bama's like playing cards in his hospital bed being like no it's all good it's fine no big deal and then Dave's staring out the window it's like fucking 
Hopper painting, you oh, know, it's yeah. like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that too. Cause it's so like classic Hollywood, you know, you, these, these diseases that in 58, you know, people would be like, it was a death sentence. He had diabetes, you know, and yeah. it's like, uh, no man, you just stop drinking, you know, watch your diet a little bit, you know, but it's like, I got diabetes. <laughs> it's like, might as well put a bullet in me. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, Bama. <laughs> He's got diabetes, oh God. So it all builds up to the centennial and the publishing of of Dave's story in The Atlantic, but his relationship with Gwen is like totally deteriorated. Dave is is dejected because he's, you know, being ignored and being rejected by Gwen and he goes home to Ginny and she's like, I bought all the copies of The Atlantic at the newsstand. And he's like, you don't even know how to read. Yeah. Uh, And he's, you know, he says some extremely hurtful things things to her but then of course there's the scene where it like dissolves and he's reading her the story and this is our our only look into dave's prose so i wanted to lay it on the line right these are this is what we get of dave's writing in the movie as read by frank and before he was aware of it he was lost there wasn't much time left And he realized that he would have to return over familiar ground, running to reach the point at which he could start all over again. Stinker. (laughs) Well, it's the Atlantic, you know? (laughs) You know, that that scene was so gut-wrenching for me because, you know, he reads through the story. And this is, of course, after, uh, I believe he has proposed to her. So in again, as you said, this moment of like dejection, you know, he's really struggling with this and he kind of shits all over Ginny and then he sort of thinks about it and he's like, well, she is here. Uh, And and I think partly proposes to her because she agreed to clean up the apartment for him. And he's sort of like- He was like weighing the pros and cons. He's like, she's here and she said she'd clean. Yeah, because she's like, I'd do anything for you. I'd do anything to be with you and to have you love me. And he goes- would you clean up the place? <laughs> and she goes, yeah. And he's like, I mean, he's such a piece of shit. But but then in that moment, he he reads it to her, and and you know she's she's not an educated woman, and and she's just being supportive, and and she's just like, oh, I I just loved it. And he's like, what did you love about it? And he starts grilling her, you right. know, like tell me like specifically. And she's like, oh, the characters go on the gauntlet and tell me what you think <laughs> right. of my story. Yeah. yeah, totally. But it's also like to me that scene and that moment is so beautiful because even as it's sort of depicted, Davis half-heartedly like, yeah, let's get married, and he even is like unpleasant at their wedding. But like he looks at her and sees that she loves him so much unquestioningly unquestioningly that it like affects him to the degree where he's just like they marry me you know i mean that's that's like a really powerful thing because i think in that moment dave is recognizing yeah like something that you can't put into words something like that you can't analyze you know and bama his true friend calls him out on it. Yeah. You know? And, like, he's basically like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, do not marry this girl. This is, like, a coward's move. Like, more or less, like, calls him out on that shit, you know? And he walks away from Bama as well in that moment. And it's basically like, 
nope, I'm doing this. I'm going to marry this girl, and that's it. This is who I am. And Bama even sees through that shit, you know? But I, I, I see what you're saying, too, Marsh, because I think we, we have to bring up what Shirley MacLaine says in response to Dave when he says, like, why are you even saying you love this? You don't understand any of this. And that's when she says, Every time I open my mouth, you get mad at me. You don't understand a word of what I said. You don't understand the story at all. No, I don't, but that don't mean I don't like it. I don't understand you neither, but that don't mean I don't like you. I love you, I, but I don't understand you. So what's the matter with that? And I think that that does break through to him, at least the way I read it. It feels like that does truly resonate with him, and it's like a, it's a, it's a humbling moment for him. But it is then, like, completely undercut by, like, the, the marriage itself, as Marsh of mentioned. Of course. Like, by the time they're at the altar, as the carnival's going on in the background, he is just positively miserable, you yeah. know? He's back to sober, mean Dave, yeah. you know? He doesn't even kiss her no. after the, the judge pronounces them man and wife, and he pays off the witnesses to, that, that were there, you know, that he had to, like, hire to, to stand in or whatever, because Bama refused to go, you know, because he's like, there's a sham wedding. I'm not taking part in this. And then, like, she, like, turns to him, and it's like, now we kiss, right? This is love. This is romance. And he just, like, gives her the cold shoulder, literally, like, walks out. Mm -hmm. And thus begins uh, one of my favorite sequences in the history of cinema, the carnival, and all oh, the man. strands of the movie sort of come together in this moment. After the wedding, we've got Dave and Ginny kind of wandering through the carnival. Meanwhile, Raymond the gangster is back. He's got a gun. And he's got a gun, and he's wasted. And Bama, drinking at Smitty's, is alerted of this, and he gives chase into the carnival. And, and we should say, this carnival, which a lot of it was shot on location with the real Ferris wheel, is just a like kaleidoscope color. It's like hundreds of extras. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of extras, crazy dolly shots, crane shots, tracking every which way through this dense sort of like carnival scape. And it becomes very heightened and colorful. The lighting on Raymond throughout the sequence is unbelievable as he's like bathed in uh, complete red gelled lights and silhouetted lighting. And like canted angles. Yeah, and he even gets like a spotlight in the shot where he's like stuck in the crowd of people. There's like a searing like little bright spot like on him in this sea as he's like sweating profusely. <laughs> yeah. Guzzling whiskey, gun crazy, looking for his... Yeah, because he's heard that the... Uh, he heard about the, the wedding, you know? Uh, somehow, word travels fast. Probably on the radio. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was probably... Yeah, everything Dave does is on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Raymond is after them. What is he going to do? He's got this gun. He's sweating profusely. <laughs> Bama's chasing after him. And meanwhile... 
too much. We can't get into all of this, but there's also intercutting with like the Frank Hirsch story, where his whole family life is blown up because yeah. his affair <laughs> with his secretary was found out, and so they're all like at the bus stop next to the carnival, also having all this stuff like with them intercut, and their like notes of their emotional story is also concluding at the bus stop as they awkwardly run into the secretary. (laughs) And whenever it returns to Dave and Ginny, it almost feels gothic, as if through all of this color and all of these expressive moments, when we return to them, it's as if they're just marching towards their death. Like, it's extremely grim following this sham marriage. She's desperately reaching out to him, and he's just brushing her off. And they're just sort of marching through all of this, all of this carnivalesque joy, basically. It's a, it's a big party, but not for them. Yeah. And she's talking about where they might go on their honeymoon, and all he thinks is as long as we get out of here. Right. And it really does feel like a death drive at that moment. I mean, he's got, it seems like he has nothing to look forward to except leaving. And then it's knowing that someone is after them with a gun, it, it all feels inevitable. And Raymond catches up to him and he opens fire, killing Ginny and wounding Dave in the shoulder as Bama was not able to to get there in time. Yeah, Dave gets wounded and she throws herself on top of him to to shield him from the bullets and is drilled by Raymond. So, and it, you know, that's too to me where, you know, some of the sort of like classical Hollywood you know, morality play stuff really comes into the fold because I I can't help but also see Ginny as just this like, well, of course she should be punished. She's a floozy. She's a loose woman, you know? Like, she has to die so that everyone can, like, learn a lesson or what, right? Like, I mean, yeah, I think it's more, you know, uh, I mean, to an extent, yeah, In again, in the novel, Dave is shot dead at the carnival. That's the book. And so it was Sinatra's idea to give McLean, you know, that ending. But, I mean, they do treat it, yeah, she's like a saint, you know, at least to these people. And, like, I get you, though. You the know? hooker with so, the heart of gold. Yeah, you know? of course. I mean, she is, she's treated like shit throughout the movie Dean Martin calls her a pig to her face like 25 times I mean it's like a comedic gag that is as you know more revealing about him than it is about her obviously but that's in there too and you know actually in people in Avengement call each other pigs as well so that's another (laughs) uh, another another thing but we do get the end of the film this very touching funeral for Ginny where as Andy was alluding to earlier the hat of Bama is uh, finally removed in a self-conscious gesture of respect. And yeah, I mean, it is this tragic moment and, and a conclusion that, like Dave's story that's published in The Atlantic, well, we're just back at square one. You know, nothing has been gained. Nothing has been really solved. Nothing has been achieved. $500 for the publishing in the, in the magazine. But uh, we're just starting all over again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and again, I couldn't help but think for Dave, you know, Again, another great story out of all yeah, this. Yeah, you could get, you could get <laughs> like great. a serialized thing going on. <laughs> yeah, another on great this. semi-autobiographical story. Yeah. Why don't you this. try the New Yorker next time? Maybe good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was funny when the film ended, and I was watching it with my folks. 
my dad looked over at me and I was, I said, I said, that was just exquisite. Like, I love that. I, I was like so moved by the film. I was like, this is so beautiful. And he got really excited because he thought I was about to like do the gauntlet, you know? <laughs> it was like a nice like dad moment where he's like, oh yeah, yeah, what, what? What, why? What, <laughs> you know, what, 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 what'd you love about it? And I, and we talked about it, and it was nice. And, and you know, he, he's really excited now, too, after having seen both films to, to listen to this episode. He listened to some on a trip they took recently, and they had a lot of fun. And, but um, let me tell you, when Avengement ended, it, he wasn't asking me what I liked about the movie. <laughs> he, was, he was gushing with glee at all of the things that uh, he took away from it. And um, I'm yeah. so happy that, yes. uh, you know, my choice could provide that for you mm-hmm. and your father. Yeah, it was a very it was a very gleeful viewing experience, yeah, to say I the sh- least. I, I should say we've we've been talking about a film that I think is very lauded uh, with Academy Award nominations and from, you know, one of the most respected figures of classical Hollywood. And and, you know, we're pairing that with a film that I think isn't lauded nearly enough for like what it actually provides in its cheapo by comparison <laughs> DTV package. Mm-hmm. It also, well, I mean, it it has nice widescreen cinematography. You know, a lot of nice clean images. You know, like I like any action film that isn't overcut. You know, and this film, like a lot of films directed by former stuntmen, is nice and clean and like good action, filling up that frame and and cutting when they need to and not overdoing it. You know, and I uh, I appreciate that. Absolutely, as I mentioned in like my in my preamble, uh, Jesse Johnson and uh, Adkins. This was one of several collaborations that the two of them have had, and I think by this time. Uh, in their pairing, like they, they really are very clearly like working together, like, you know, Sinatra and Minnelli, perhaps, you know, <laughs> because I think like Johnson, who was a former, as you mentioned, stunt performer and Atkins, who is a very accomplished martial artist, like they know the money shots, you know, they know the moments when it's like, all right, this is like we got to make sure we capture this thing very well um, because it is extremely well choreographed. It's, it's well-framed. I think the action is very clear throughout and it, it shows, I think growth on, on the part of Johnson as a director. Cause I've seen some of his earlier films as well and, and they aren't nearly as well composed as this film is. There's just such a great clarity of action when all these bodies are smashing up against each other because it is it's not graceful martial arts in a way you know it's they're brawling and they're in each other's faces they're really close up it's like tense just big muscles you know slamming yeah, against prison each other brawling yeah <laughs> but you know when someone gets his face like smashed into a cork board or someone's arm is just like snapped or like teeth are knocked out of their faces like you see it all and it never feels like it's lost in the cuts or any of the blurs you know and i gotta say too i i i wish i had recorded the experience and because it's something i feel like would be enjoyable to just watch the film with like my mother gasping every time or when someone breaks someone's arm my dad going out away yeah <laughs> I like when they break them, you know. And there are some very like gnarly uh, moments in in this film. Uh, the, the as you mentioned, um, you know the, the the metal teeth that he's wearing, you know, kind of looking like a 
a Bond villain kind of oh. Jaws. <laughs> and, and you know, since we're on that subject, I, I, I want to say, as somebody that's a huge fan of Scott Atkins, I know that you know they're looking for a new Bond, and I personally think that Scott Atkins. You're throwing his his name in the ring. Not, I'm going to nominate Scott Atkins here officially on the gauntlet for the new James Bond. That's not a bad. I hadn't even considered that. But um, he's got the action. He's got the charisma. Got the charisma. He's, he's very, from England. He's from England. He's very handsome. Easy he on the eyes, yeah. All of his own stunt work as well. Like, why isn't his name being thrown around right yeah. now? Yeah. Well, we should set up, uh, at the very least, the sort of predicament that Kane is in in this film. And again, this this information is largely doled out in a series of, of flashbacks. But we are sort of in the dark as the film begins, right? Because he just kind of breaks out. He goes to see his mother. She's already dead. And then he's on the move. And you're like, what? What's going on? You know? And I was very disoriented uh, for a minute. Uh, and then he goes to the bar. And I realized what this what this thing is. And I was thinking about 1930s crime films that we were talking about off mic recently, like The Petrified Forest, uh, where a criminal terrorizes a group of people in one single location. And that was like a hallmark of Warner Brothers after the, you know, after and during the Depression when they had like sold all their sets and they were paring down production. And so I was watching this movie thinking like, well, of course, this is a direct-to-video action film. It doesn't have that much juice behind it. So yeah, it's a single location and then all these flashbacks. It's a cheap concept. I mean, they do have pretty good prison sets and hospital sets and stuff like that. But uh, all told, they, they keep it simple. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you bring up that that connection um, because I think for me this week too, I've been sort of going back and, and watching some of the other Jesse Johnson films that I like and particularly the ones with Scott Adkins and trying to really kind of like narrow down why I think in the piles of, of you know, DTV garbage that's out there, like some of his films, I don't want to say all of his films, but some of his films particularly like really shine for me. And I think as I've seen him develop as a filmmaker, it's because of his influences. He has such great influences. Like he's uh, been interviewed about some of the influences that that for him as a director like are very present in a lot of the decisions that he makes and he's referenced people like John Ford, Joseph Losey, you know, think about some of like Losey's kind of like lockdown films as well, but also Peckinpah. That's evident. Don Siegel, <laughs> yeah. Don Siegel yeah. and Robert Aldrich. Yeah. Like, Siegel's someone I thought dudes. of while watching. Absolutely. Action dudes who knew how to do a lot with, at times, very little. And also have a tremendous sort of like expediency in their stories and in their films. And a bite, too, because, you know, one thing that becomes clear over time in the film is that, yeah, like, <laughs> Kane is also like a like a a prole hero, you know, like he's trying to like right certain wrongs in the world in this very kind of like heroic proletarian kind of way. And, and that element, yeah, also kind of surprised me, but yeah, thinking about Aldrich or something like that, you know, it's not just, I want revenge on my brother. It's <laughs> a much larger injustice, you know, and restore dignity to, to people who had that sort of taken away from them. Yeah. 
Because we should mention, like, you know, as it's sort of revealed later in the film, like, the 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 reason that Kane, like, is so fucked up, or the thing that begins his journey to getting, you know, so monstrous. You know, we're first introduced to him looking like, yeah, uh, one of the guys in the bar calls him Frankenstein's monster, you know? Like, we, we first see him that way, and then we have one of these flashbacks where we see him... Just a normal guy. Just a normal guy, yeah. handsome, clean cut. Looks like he could be Bond. Yeah, looks <laughs> like he could be Bond, yeah. And, and he goes into this backroom poker game that is his brother and some of the other hoods that his brother associates with. You know, they're having this poker game and he approaches his brother for a loan because he just wants to start an honest business. He wants to start a, a gym, you know, for, for fighters and to be trained. And his brother rejects him, you know. His brother has this very sort of like humiliating kind of moment with him where he like insults him and and embarrasses him in front of all these guys and it's like I never loan money to family and also you're a big fuck up and you cost all of us money because you were supposed to throw a fight that you won and you know Kane in his defense was like look I was trying to make it look real or whatever you know I'm Scott Atkins for fuck's sake right yeah, knocked <laughs> the guy out on accident yeah you know, you know? Plausible. but but he's he's rejected and then his brother says well look I'm not going to loan you some money but if you want to make some money like you got to do a job for us and it's in the course of doing this job that Kane gets arrested you know he's supposed to steal a package from a woman who's picking up the package from these guys and whilst you know he steals this woman's you know this package that the woman had and she chases him down and gets hit by a car and then Kane is convicted of vehicular manslaughter you know the the, the cops basically say look the woman wouldn't have gotten hit by the car if she wasn't chasing you for stealing the package and so while like the journey kind of begins the catalyst is his brother Lincoln, as you mentioned, right? The film does like then show how this guy is completely like those scars are very much a product of the systems that chew him up and spit him out, right? So it's it's sort of looking at the prison because he's thrown into this awful prison and shows you how poorly managed and administrated yeah. like this yeah. guy had, you know are. it's classic this guy had no priors and uh, they throw the book at him because they're trying to roll him up to get to the sort of gangster network that his brother is running they're running this like massive scam on people but he's yeah he's thrown into jail and and you know it reminded me uh, like many things do of Michael Mann's thief because there's a lot of similarities to the characters of King and Frank and Thief because that's Frank's whole story is, you know, he stole 40 bucks. Next thing you know, you're in prison. Next thing you know, someone's trying to kill you, so you kill them. There you go. There's five more years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's very much what we're sort of treated to in these flashbacks is seeing, you know, him go into prison and come out a monster. And we see that through, you know, the very beginning. He's like curb stomped like five minutes into the goddamn sequence of him being in prison for the first time time oh, yeah. and it just gets worse from there yeah and, to and which my father <laughs> said oh that hurt <laughs> yeah. yeah it really did for sure and he gets the yeah, he gets these like ugly cap teeth you know uh from the the salty ha uh, prison doctor <laughs> right. dentist yeah. or doctor or yeah. whatever He's like, this is and all it's implied we got that 
Yeah, it's implied that he was given the metal teeth and not the porcelain ones because he wasn't polite enough to the prison doctor, right? Yeah. But yeah, you know, and then it, it, he he seems to notice that, you know, through this 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 time in prison that uh, he's a marked man. Everyone's trying to kill him all the time. Everyone is just out to get him, and and he's picking up on that, and he's wondering like, why the fuck is everybody in here after me? And that no one seems to care. The prison officials don't care. The prison guards don't care. No prisoners, you know, really are 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 giving him any kind of like camaraderie or tenderness whatsoever. And then he discovers after beating the absolute fuck out of one of these guys that there's a price on his head and the price of 20,000 pounds was put there by his own brother. So really like that is the moment that he then says like, all right, like I'm going to turn myself into a monster. And he says something like I had to turn myself into something I couldn't recognize, a rusty hardened nail. And, you know, it's like that moment, I think, when he really decides, like, I have to somehow, some way, get out of here and go confront my brother, you know, however I can get out of here. But I've also just simply got to survive. Mm-hmm. And like Frank says in Thief, you got to get to where nothing means nothing, mm-hmm. you know, you got to not give a fuck. Yeah. If you live or die, that's the way to survive, you know? And he goes into full prison fighter mentality, yeah. you know? And he even says that in the bar, you know, he's saying like, look, I was, I was like tempering myself physically in there, but more than that, I was tempering myself mentally. Right. And he says something like, you know, it's all about the brain, you know, that's how you win. That's how you, that's how you like, don't lose. It's all about your mind more than it is even your body. And like, he takes that into, into heart. Like, you know, he really does because yeah, he, uh, he turns himself, yeah, into a, a one man fucking wrecking machine. I think my favorite <laughs> part of all the, the prison flashbacks is, you know, after he's found out, uh, about the, his brother's bounty, there's, you know, an epic, like, brawling montage that's going on. And in the sort of conclusion of that montage, he is just fighting a full prison riot squad with, like, shields and helmets. Yeah. And he is just, like, cracking all their skulls. And it's just beautifully done. And I was like, oh, my God, this movie kicks so much yeah. ass. He's yeah. screaming like a maniac, you know? <laughs> yeah, just taking on, like, ten guys in full riot gear, like, and wanting to, you know, yeah. very much. Like, this is the final stage of his training, you know? <laughs> oh, um, yeah. And he's also going into, like, solitary and just, like, shadow boxing and screaming like a maniac a bunch. Training, yeah. It was as all these layers of the story were being revealed and the, um, like, the, the bounty on him, why he got put into jail, how he was surviving through it. And I think it was during that, like, riot guard battle that my mom just said oh i feel so bad for him (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and it's true you you're watching this guy just fight to survive and you're just like ah fuck man like it's just and on top of that he finds out his mom has cancer yeah and that really wrecks him you know and there's two scenes with his mom in prison that are pretty like pretty heartbreaking and kind of sad you know uh and of course they have to set up you know the the brother 
the brother tension yeah. uh, in these moments. Because, you know, he is feeling so betrayed by his brother. Like, why hasn't my brother come and come to visit me? He needs to come and talk to me. And the mom, like, is, like, defending the brother. And it's like, well, he he takes such good care of me. And, you know, there's this moment once he's discovered the bounty that he wants, you know, he's going to confront his mom and tell her, like, you think he's so fucking great? He did all this to me. This is him. Like, he put a bounty on me. And when she tells him, well, you know, Lincoln, your brother's been taking good care of me with the cancer and and making sure I'll, I get to the hospital and paying for all my treatment. And then he doesn't tell her. He doesn't reveal it. You know, he lets her hold on to the idea mm-hmm. that Lincoln is the good son and that he's the bad yeah. son. It's like so much more tragic in that moment because we see that, you know, like your mom, like, I feel so bad for this guy, like everything, <laughs> like the, the, he gets fucking thrown, like what he calls napalm in his face at a yeah. certain point where these guys in prison take sugar cubes and just mix it up with hot water. And he, he gets horribly burned on half of his fucking face from this, you know? And after all this, he has to then just swallow all that and let his mom hold on to the idea that he's the fail son and that Lincoln is this like, you know, angel out there taking care of her when they were concocting the prison napalm in that cup uh my mom gasped and said oh no the acid (laughs) that's right pretty much yeah Yeah. pretty much you know what's happening when they're when they're stewing stuff in that cup yeah again i think like part of why this film for me like it's, it's just like it works on so many different levels is because of that structure, because of the way that the film like, you know, sort of punctuates moments of violence and then moments of simply like people like talking or in his case telling stories, but like the way characters kind of develop and unfold for us, particularly like him and his brother. But like, man, in spite of the action being great, like I also really love just his performance when he's telling the stories, when he's talking to these guys, when he's, he's you know, revealing all this information. I think that's why, for me, this is one of Scott Atkins, if not his best, certainly right up there with his best overall performances because I think he's also showcasing his, his acting here, you know? He's a guy that spent a lot of years just playing a heavy or a villain or just some sort of, like, supporting martial arts guy but now in this role, like I think, man, you see that the guy's got good acting chops and great comedic timing. I mean, I think this is like really a good showcase for like the fact that this guy is like underutilized in a major way. You know, when you think about some of the other people out there getting great action roles and, you know, getting all the big the big stuff, it's like, man. This guy should be in fucking way more shit, you know? Like Bond. Like Bond, like dude. Bond. He'd be a great Bond. But, but man, I just, like, I, I love all the bar stuff. You know, this really reminded me, too, of, like, of, like, 70s films. Like, it had a very 70s kind of vibe to it, you know? I mean, obviously, again, knowing his source material and the directors that have really inspired him in certain films, like, I think he's a huge fan of Charlie Varick. Like, he loves <laughs> Charlie Varick. Who isn't? Yeah, who isn't? But also, like, you know, in again, the classic idea of, like, vengeance and the homecoming, something like Get Carter, right? Um, but, like, the the stuff with all the, the gangsters in the bar is all really good, you know? As he's sort of building up to this 
eventual showdown with his brother because I almost felt that he was sort of winning a few of those guys over and all that, you know? There's one guy in particular that's really, like, looking at him like, man, like, that must be really tough what you went through, (laughs) you know? And there's even, like, a moment of, like, tenderness when he talks about his mother dying and, like, (laughs) one of the guys that he hates the most is like, all right, all our bullshit aside, like, I'm sorry for your loss, man. Your mom was great. And it's like, yeah, thanks. I know my mom was great. You know, like like, this moment of familiarity, you know, which is why it is like a, for me, it's a homecoming film because certainly with his brother and this guy Hyde, like they've known each other and they've known each other for a long time. And so there is that, that familiarity, that comfort and, you know, almost a throwback to last week still like, embedded within the the hatred or rivalry or whatever you want to call it between him and his brother, there still is shades of affection and love. They are brothers. Like, they at one time, like, did share something. And they certainly shared their mother, you know? Absolutely. And so, basically, you know, I think the film really is kind of like a two-act movie, uh, the way I was looking at it, like... There's, you know, the first half of the movie, as we've been discussing, recalling his journey up to that moment. And then his brother finally arrives at the bar and now it's nighttime and there's a storm going on outside. So there's even been like a lighting shift uh, in the interior of the bar. Uh, And then, yeah, it gets gets tense and the brothers do their whole uh, showdown thing. And then it maintains the flashback structure. But since we've built all the way up to this present moment, now we learn about the last couple days of what he's been up to as he's been on the lam and enacting his premeditated plan of vengeance. Or if it wasn't premeditated, he'd certainly thought about the moves he would make if and when he got out of prison. So there's all these... You know, because his his story ultimately, yeah, you know, so much of the, the bar stuff is about him telling the story and the story being challenged and him being like, oh, it's this, you know. I mean, I'll be honest, I found those scenes to be like kind of clunky, largely enjoyable, kind of a mixed bag for me. But like his charm and his, you know, his gr- his grin and his grill, oh, like, yeah. you know, I, I was just won over by him. And especially when, of course, the bar then turns to mayhem in the second half as he uh, <laughs> blows a guy's head up in an extremely graphic uh, shot of a, you know, a, a little shotgun uh, blowing a head off. Yeah, completely oh, yeah. blowing that off. To which, <laughs> to which my father said, there you go. Because he had been waiting that whole yeah. time. He kept saying, he's like, that gun's been on the back of that guy's head. I've just been itching for that thing to go off. And, and then when it happened, and it, it was, was the most gratifying. annoying guy it was. whose head got blown off as you could probably see coming yeah. in that sense because he was the most smug uh, of the you know the guy Richie stock gang that's hanging out in that bar the, the, the explosion of the head looked good but when he collapses on the ground you see like the the uh, the cracks in the direct-to-video film kind of showing yeah. you know yeah the CGI mm-hmm. severed severed like or like half head like kind of like near the mouth it looked yeah, a bit the, silly. the line was a little too clean yeah, you know, the, yeah. of the severing <laughs> yeah. you know one the, of the flashbacks in the in in that in like the second half of the film that I that I really enjoyed, of course, is the whole thread with the uh, the kappa, uh, the sort of bad, beefy, buff 
cop that uh, Adkins encounters when he's arrested and gets like a beating from. Uh, and it turns out that this cop uh, was working with Lincoln, his brother, the whole time and sort of passing along bad information. And so one of the first things that Kane does when he gets out of, uh, escapes from prison is... Track this son of a bitch yeah, down. This, I, we should, I, we should, I just want to say really quick, we also see him escape, yeah. which is elided in the opening, hinted at... We do eventually see him, like, beat up a bunch of guys in a classic elevator scene, of course. How's he going to get out of this one? Pretty easily, because he's well, a badass. And again, but. I think, like, that's where you really start to see, like, this whole almost, like, masochistic thread of, like, him being in prison and him talking about, like, like seeking out fights and, like, getting into fights and basically, like training and practicing and everything so that when he did finally have his moment like with these cops like he was not going to blow it like no. he takes on two very big very large prepared police officers and he's handcuffed to one of them and he's handcuffed to one of them and i mean he just like you said like this isn't a showcase of of necessarily adkins more acrobatic martial arts skills which he does have if you've seen any of like his other uh, films, but like this is just like brutal brawling in close quarters. They're ugly, messy fights, and he takes a lot of hits. <laughs> like he's he's taking as much as he's dishing out. But it's oh, yeah. the idea. But he welcomes it, right? He's welcomed it, and again, the idea that he's like he's weathered himself so much that like he's just going to be able to outlast anybody yeah, in He's been fights. shivved more times than he can even remember at that <laughs> right. point, you know? Yeah. So, like I was saying, he tracks down this the beefy cop, the corrupt cop who's working with the mob, and he, he's been demoted over the years, so now he's, like, back to being a beat cop. And no, for, he got fired. Oh, he got fired, yeah, he's so he's working guard. private security. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, okay, I didn't understand what was going on there. Yeah. So he tracks him down as he's working security and, like, this dance club dance like, club yeah. slash gym scenario i mean <laughs> yeah. honestly it's just like the filmmakers setting up a cool like fake event space they wanted dr- like a lighting gag yeah they wanted know? a lighting gag and you get it here the neon pink and blue uh, sort of universal soldier day of reckoning lighting loved it i mean just stylish for you know stylish sake yeah as these guys then of course brawl it out um and yeah so his time once he's escaped from prison is hunting down all the the mobsters and enacting uh, a bit of theft as well. Yeah, an elaborate scheme. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is quite elaborate. For yeah. a guy who has just escaped from prison, you know? Because, yeah, it isn't just that he, like, throws himself headfirst at his brother, you know? He's, he's, he's had to, like, set up a few things in order to make his brother's, like, downfall that much more... Uh, massive, you know, that much more cataclysmic for his brother, one of which is also tracking down his brother's accountant. Because as Marsh alluded to earlier, you know, 
part of what he got roped into unknowingly was this was this as it's known as a sort of cuckoo scam the cops call it a cuckoo scam where basically it's it's kind of convoluted but the long and short of it is they they find people who who need to borrow money desperate people and then they get them on the hook and they tell them that there's a way to get out of their debt by delivering a package and then they hire some other hood to steal the package from these unknowing you know poor debtors and then using that as extra leverage to then basically like pick them completely clean like right you lost our package you owe us that much more you realize now we get everything that you have so it's revealed that basically like his brother Lincoln has destroyed the lives of like several families. I think it's like 147. Yeah. yeah. Like 147 people <laughs> or whatever. And, and so Kane goes to his brother's accountant, you know, in addition to all these other sort of brutal assaults and killings he does. And he has his brother's accountant. We discover later transfer all of his brother's money, transfer all of Lincoln's money, all the money he's stolen from these people back to them in equal shares. That's right. You know, this, again, pearl hero. And it was funny, I watched Some Came Running after this, so, like, with that ending fresh in mind, when Some Came Running started and they mentioned that he deposited all his money in the rival bank, I thought, ah, more bank fuckery with the the brother, you know? Like, (laughs) these guys, like, they know how to really upset their their elder brothers. Yeah, if you go to the bank, that's really gonna get your older brother's goat, for sure, you know? (laughs) So he's bankrupted his brother, and then proceeds to completely dismantle uh, his brother's criminal organization. Yes, he does. In a fight sequence that I didn't quite clock, but it is... I mean, it's got to be like 10 minutes or more. It's long. Yeah. It is long. You know, I, I was also kind of thinking of like, this is like Jesse Johnson's like, you know... Chimes chimes at midnight battle sequence because it's so long and it just proceeds to get more and more brutal and bloody and graphic as the scene unfolds. You know, it starts with just a a, a bunch of like good punch em ups, but by the end, people are getting. I mean, he's biting a guy like Dracula at some <laughs> yeah. point in this yeah. brawl. You yeah. know, that's how desperate it gets. It's oh, a yeah. messy, messy fight. But not visually, it's quite clear. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. see everything that goes on. We see every bone that's broken. Yeah. And in there in the amidst all this mayhem and chaos, you know, there is the the brother to brother confrontation. And and that's, you know, ultimately Cain, you know, has to ask, Why'd you do it? You know, what the fuck, man? Because yeah, it really does seem, you know. Really brutal what happened to him. I feel very bad for for him. Like yeah. your, like your mom, <laughs> yeah. like your mom. <laughs> Love uh, my mom. And you know, so he asks him, "Why'd you do it?" And Lincoln says, "Because of you. Because of you. See whether you fucking grasp or not. People stop respecting me, and you know me, bruv." I will not be fucking disrespected. It was about respect. You know, people lost respect for me when you got arrested. And at that point, you were cut off. You were my, you know, you were a net loss. You were 
uh, cancer yeah. uh, on our family, right? Ooh. Just like Frank Hirsch and his perception of Dave as this sort of cancer. What are people going to say? Black sheep. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it all in that moment, I was like, because I watched Some Came Running first, and then I was watching this, and I was just like, oh, my God. God, these older brothers, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it is, you know, for for Frank and Lincoln, you know, their, their issue is that it is all about perception, how they are perceived, and and their concerns about perception uh, have have adversely affected their relationships with their brothers. Again, in sort of different ways, you know, with different outcomes. But yeah, you know, again, another interesting connection between the two films, right, is that the older brother sort of rejects in one form or another the younger brother because he's worried how it's going to affect him, how people are going to see him. And then one goes to an orphanage and one goes to a prison, you know, and then you get the state involved and well, the next thing you know, we got problems. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But man, I mean, like, really, I, I, I we were kind of talking a little bit about it off, you know, off mic, uh, before the the pod and you know part of the reason why i really wanted to like bring this film is because you know this is a film that's just like not on a lot of people's radar but you know when you dig around you do see that i think people who 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 do sort of find enjoyment in some of the more you know you could call them like kind of b b movies b action films that are made today like i think this film uh deserves like way more attention uh, as one of like the better action films and again like pure action films of the last certainly the last decade you know I mean it, it gets overshadowed by I think so many more you know bigger action films that are out there but for me like this again like hearkening to the 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 Seagulls and the Aldriches guys who at times were also overshadowed by bigger budget directors and and much more bloated the Vincente Manellis of the, <laughs> yeah. of the world exactly you know? like this film like it it is like a a, a a shaggy movie and it is not a perfect movie but god damn like it is a it is a there's just something so like honest about it. You know, I think both films have an earnestness that really appeals to me in a certain way. Like I was genuinely moved when Adkins is just kind of like bloodied and, and smiling at the end after he's kind of like achieved his goal, you know? Yeah. And so when the film had ended and the credits were rolling on Netflix, I, so I backed out of the app on my parents' TV. We ended up back on, you know, just cable Xfinity and it was the final scene from what I think must be one of the newer, like, Kingsman prequel films. I don't really know much about the Kingsman universe. But the final scene... <laughs> That's Tory cinema. The final scene was, it was, it was like, in a pub. And I think they, it was, like, they were prepping for a big brawl. And it was, like, grotesque. It was just so brightly lit. It looked like a Netflix comedy. Everyone's standing around. They're all, like, cute in their little suits. And you've got, who must be Kingsman or somebody, you know, he, like, puts his umbrella down and he's, like, puts his pint down and he says, well, gentlemen, are we ready for a brawl? (laughs) And it's, like, this, like, smirking bullshit, especially just after having watched Avengement. And then, funny enough, too, so it cuts to black and there was a dedication to his mother, Kathy, for 
a teaching him what it means to be a Kingsman, uh, which is all just like so perplexing. I don't know anything about the Kingsman movies, but I agree. There's, you get bullshit like that. Something that is just like totally Marvel brained. And then you have something that's so earnest like Avengement. And it's hard not to see, you know, clearly which one is much more enjoyable. One that's really going to get your dad all fired up, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, you you know, and again, I, I, I've been like trying to really like think about it why I, I like you know Jesse Johnson and I would put him in a in a similar category with like I'd say both of the Hyams uh, and I know like you're a big fan of another oh, yeah. Scott Adkins uh, you sort of like vulgar tourist work the Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning part of the reason why I really like a lot of these films and their films is because. You know, they're just out there making B-movies. They're not, like, trying to Tarantino that shit. You know, the source material of, like, the Tarantinos and the the constant winking mm-hmm. bullshit, you know? Yeah. The, the, the mugging in those movies. Yeah. You know, it's just so much mugging. And here... They're lean and mean. They're lean and mean, and, and they're, they're not trying to to invoke this thing they're not trying to adorn themselves in that way they're just you know like bama in in some came running you know they're just unapologetically who they are right but yeah so it was it was a very pleasant homecoming it was a remarkable pairing i think there were a lot of secrets in both films that were revealed by smashing them up against each other. So I, I salute you both. Yeah, literally and um, figuratively. <laughs> for the selection. This was, I, I hope, a, a good homecoming for you back in Chicago. Uh, you didn't run into Raymond. That's that's a good thing. No, I didn't. I suppose. So what, what would be some of the homecoming films that come to your mind there's one in particular i was thinking of that i saw for the first time last year that really struck a chord with me also because of its unadorned brutality and its emotional depth and that is the phil carlson film walking tall with joe don baker as he comes back to his hometown in the south only to realize that boy oh boy is it in trouble and he, uh, he gets his big wooden club and he, you know, he enacts his own form of homecoming justice. And uh, it's an unmissable film. The remake with The Rock is uh, rather dreadful. But not without its But not without pleasures. its charms. You know, it, it, it <laughs> captures something about the milieu. I feel like I even grew up with in middle school that everyone... All the boys in middle school were emulating the rock's behavior in Walking Tall without probably having seen You were being hit, hit with a two-by-four all the time. <laughs> yeah, I was constantly just getting whacked. Or, <laughs> I, yeah, middle school, a lot like uh, the prison in Avengement. <laughs> no, not literally. I was actually at a very... My middle school experience was fine. But yeah, so the, the, that was my topic. Had a blast. Um, Marsh, what are you, we're welcoming the new year. What do, you, what do you got for us next week? Well, on that note, it is the new year and it got me thinking you know it's uh it's 2022 and the the 2020s gotta say they've been kind of lousy for obvious reasons and so i was thinking you know what are some alternate visions of the 2020s that are out there and that we can maybe think about and so my topic is the future is now I want you to bring me films from the past 
set in the 2020s. All right. Challenge accepted. Very fun. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. That was nice going, Dave. I'm real proud of you. One day in town, just one day, and you're picked up in a drunken bra with a floozy and, and tossed into jail like a common hoot. I know all about it, Frank. I just don't understand you. Is that your problem for this morning? What have you got against me? Not a thing. Oh, yes, you have. I take you to my home. I introduce you to the best people in town, like like the Frenchies. And this is the thanks I get. You seem to resent my position. It's no crime to be successful. I've worked hard for everything I've got. Nobody's helped me. Is this going to be another one of those long lectures? Oh, I might have known. Frank, I'm not trying to leave you. I don't feel well. I got a headache, and I have to be in court. You won't have to be in court, I've squared it. And that mobster friend of yours has already skipped town. You both forfeit bail. Oh, thank you. I didn't do it for you, Dave. I'm raising a decent girl. That she is. She's a fine girl. And I told the judge you'll be leaving town. You should tell him where I was going. How do I know where you're going? How did you know I was leaving? Aren't you? Yeah, I guess. I wish I could say I was sorry, Dave. I wish you could say so, too. Well, I suppose to begin all the afternoon papers. That's all I need. Just when my name was beginning to amount to something. How could you do this to me? Me, 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 me. Don't you ever get tired of thinking about your dull, greedy, small self? Now get out of here. I'm tired of listening to you. Get the hell out of here.